You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Okay, we're ready to go. My name is Peter Maravellis. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live. This is the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar. It began during the shelter in place. Uh, We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums throughout the month of June and into August. Uh, so it is a great pleasure to have with us tonight a couple yeah, of friends all the people in Vegas who are no strangers to uh, City Lights. Um, we have hosted them on numerous occasions. Uh, we're really great fans of their work. So uh, this is really a bit of a homecoming for us. Um, I am, of course, speaking of John Freeman and D.A. Powell, both seasoned poets. John is celebrating the release tonight of his new book. Although he is known primarily for his editorial skills and his excellent prose, he's also a brilliant poet. Uh, So his new collection of poetry is called The Park. Uh, It is published by the venerable Copper Canyon Press. This is John's second book of poetry. Uh, I mean, actually, his uh, debut is called Maps. Uh, And uh, it was published in 2017. As many of you know, he is the editor of Freeman's a literary biannual of new writing, and also the executive editor of LitHub. Uh, he's written numerous books. These include How to Read a Novelist and a Dictionary of the Undoing, as well as a trilogy of anthologies about inequality, including Tales of Two Americas, Stories of Inequality in a Divided Nation, and Tales of Two Plants, which feature uh, storytellers from around the globe, uh, speaking about uh, climate crisis. So his work has been translated into more than 20 languages. He has appeared uh, in The New Yorker, Paris Review, and The New York Times. Uh, He is the former editor of Granta and is a writer in residence at New York University. So he's going to be joined tonight by D.A. Powell. Uh, Doug is one of San Francisco's great poetic treasures. Uh, He's the author of five collections of poetry, including Chronic, the winner of the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, the books Tea, Lunch, Cocktails, and his most recent book is called Useless Landscape or A Guide for Boys, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry. Uh, so you can purchase tonight's books via the links that is going to be posted on the chat function on your screen. So uh, it is really such a great pleasure to have you both with us. Welcome to City Lights Live. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be at City Lights, even if it's not actually at City Lights. Um, I wonder how, Doug, do you want to go first or should I read first? Um, it's, it's your call. This is your night. Well, I'll, I'll start uh, just simply by saying it's, um, it's really nice to be in City Lights without actually being there because it's a long way from home. Um, and uh, I can imagine what it's like to sit in that room. Uh, and it's also just great to be with Doug because Useless Landscape, this book that um, Peter just mentioned, was... Uh, it's such a beautiful book, and if any of you are listening and are poets, um, for me it was a, as a Californian, it was a revelation, and and that you can write about the frame of a landscape, and all the things that come with a frame, and the problems that come with a frame, um, and still put yourself in the middle of that landscape, um, and have it feel natural and real, and I feel like that 
is incredibly important in a time when it feels like we live in a, a built landscape that's out of control. Um, and that, uh, you know, is sometimes very, very worrying, um, not just in California, but obviously the rest of the world. And um, I, I found in reading Useless Landscape, a kind of reclaiming of um, the spaciousness of what can happen inside of a frame, love and desire and humor and every, every kind of thing in between. So it, um, it's just kind of a, it's a real pleasure to read with you, Doug. Um, I'm gonna start off by reading a, a, a brief poem, um, not by myself, but by a, a Danish poet named Lars Skinnebach. Um, uh, it's from a book called uh, The End of the World as We Know It, which I think is probably something maybe on our minds right now. Um, it's a really short poem. It's translated by a Californian or someone who lives uh, in California right now, Susanna Need. It's very brief. Um, uh, and it has some of the qu same qualities you find in, in Doug's um, poems, like this incredible, uh, almost invertebrate ability to move around lines, humor, um, and, a, and a, an acceleration towards an ending, which is often surprising. And this is called um, The End of the World as We Know It. Uh, one year, I lived on sandworms, and I lay down in the dunes. When the disco closed, when the border closed, the interpreters killed immigrants and put the heads on stakes. I hid my knives in the heather. I, I laid sliced off lips on the hummocks as a sign for others lost in it all. And when the ants came, I followed them down underground where they lived, blocked their exits and plundered their nests and plundered their stores, minerals, eggs and dust, minerals, food and, and knowledge and I poured saliva into their saliva. Uh, so I'll start on a happy poem. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted to read that just slightly because I think we're in a time of, of jubilant um, cruelty and it's important to just acknowledge and then move away from it. But I, I feel like it's really hard to do that in a, in a poem because a poem's natural instinct I think is towards joy or to something that feels in language like joy. Uh, this was kind of the state of my mind when I was writing the park, um, which is set on four seasons around Luxembourg Gardens, where I live part of the year. Boohoo, poor me. Um, as a teacher uh, at a university program in Paris, and you know, this is starting in around 2016, and I simply just felt um, I felt a lot of despair. You know, I felt like our, for a long time the bonds between us as citizens locally and, and then abstractly were being torn apart on purpose for reasons that are obvious and then sometimes just for reasons that didn't seem to be a reason at all. It just seemed to be a possibility, um, you know, maybe by technology or something else. And uh, I would go to the park and usually at the beginning of the day and I'd feel really, um, really down and then within minutes I would feel a little bit better course it's a beautiful park and I look the way I do and I don't get accosted but it there was something about the park that I felt like was utopian uh, and then I realized it's not a utopia for everyone in the park including me and I 
I started writing poems about just sitting there. Um, and this was the first one. It's called The Sacrifice. The difference between animals and us, the main one is, they don't need to know it's a park. The coyote lopes through just the same, looking for food. We stop in mourning, sensing everything we've lost. We call that ceremony a park. So the seasons kind of turn, and in the middle of them, I start just paying attention. And I only have my own two eyes, and I, I sort of tried to write to the limit of what is possible to see with just observation. Um, I know it's a, a limited optic, but it's, it's what I have. Um, and so a lot of this book is, is me participating, but looking at things. So this poem is called Seeing Things. Now the trees rustle, rustle, sorry, let me start. Now the trees rush, crackle in the dark. I sleep like a sailor on night watch. I was told, look in the shadows for figures that freeze. I can see straight through the park. There are the camps. There are the beds. There, a man washing his foot in rainwater. You do not need to be a hawk to see here. No one talks of this, how winter doesn't just strip bare. It allows us to see what's always been there. So one of the peculiar things about living on the outskirts of this park is that obviously um, the park is beautiful, but it's, um, uh, it's closed. And sometimes people want to sleep in the park and they get kicked out of the park. And some of the people passing through the park trying to stay there were um, migrants, some of them who had been ejected from wars in the Middle East. And in the middle of that happening, and in the middle of that being, that patrol being observable every day in the park, there was an exhibit on the outside of the park of photographs of Syrian migrants, um, some of whom had walked all the way uh, to Europe. Um, and so... I, throughout this book, I'm, I'm thinking, I think, a hope about just who's allowed to belong. And uh, one of the things that was celebrated in the park was um, the, uh, the gift of the St of Statue of Liberty. Uh, and uh, I wrote a poem about this called The Gargantuan Arm. The Gargantuan Arm. Let us remember liberty was not popular. Seven years it took Laboulaye to convince Bartholdi a gigantic statue was what New York Harbor needed. Ten years later, the Frenchman arrived in Philadelphia with her gargantuan arm, 30 feet high, nearly two tons of torch, displayed at the peak of America's backward slide into emancipation. It looks like a statue sunk in sand. So were its finances. The same month, Joe Reed was dragged from his cell in Nashville, Tennessee, and hung from a suspension bridge by an angry mob. Quote, hardly had Reed been, been lodged in jail than the subject of lynching him had become general conversation, the Memphis Commercial Appeal reported. Their fundraising tour in Philadelphia complete, Bartholdi and crew dismantled the appendage, packed it into crates, and loaded her onto a train to New York City. 
For five years, the arm sat in Madison Square Park as Harper's railed against Americans having to pay for its pedestal, raising pennies, coins. You could climb up inside Liberty. It was grand, a view, but the person taking your tickets could not. People loved it. Workers on the project back in France got married, had children, died. Kipling came to Paris in 1878 when Bartholdi showed the head and was told he peered through the eyes of Liberty herself. That same month, Michael Green was dragged from his cell in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, a noose thrown around his neck and his body raised 15 feet from the ground, left there until the following morning. In May 1884, an American businessman in Paris hosted an opulent banquet in Bartholdi's honor all of Parisian society there, enclosed, pressed, and washed by others. Black servants moving through the room swiftly. over their heads to whisk away the china and cutlery before a new course arrived. Did they marvel at the strength of a human-sized arm that can carry a tray weighing 30 or 40 pounds and remain unseen? not spill a drop of wine or sweat. And did any of the men waitering that night pause for a cigarette or stand outside looking in at the glass banquet hall with its crystal chandelier and its small scale model of liberty? And no, it was not for him. So um, as the book goes on, I'm trying to think about other forms of parks that are maybe not parks. Um, ultimately, if you, um, I think, look at the world itself, it's, it's kind of a, a giant built environment um, that's full of structures and civilizations and it's curated and it has values in that curation. Um, so in the latter parts of the book, I start thinking of parks I've been to um, that maybe weren't parks, but are operating under similar uh, auspices, I guess. This is a poem called Walks in the Dark. I don't know if anyone else had the pleasure of going to Christian camp. I did. Fell out of my bunk bed on my face at night. My dad said all night long, he heard people falling out of the bunks. <laughs> um, this is not that part of the camp. This is something else. Um, this is called Walks in the Dark. The woods were stark and bluish green, lit by our candles. Ninety young boys singing, walking to the lake full of catfish and carp, holding our father's hands, the white votives dripping, the woods darker still because of those teardrops of light. Our father's hands dry and cracked and large, the lake its black water absolutely waveless, and then the candles floating out upon it, turning its surface liquid showing how easy it is to swirl darkness with a pinprick of light. This is what we were meant to learn, sing to. Only I remember how the morning after, I learned the lake was a reservoir, water we stole from the trees that gave us shade, and I found the dam holding back the hoarded water. It was clogged with the candles, which were soggy and gray, and not at all like prayers. This is a poem called On Love. 
I leave the spread of your hair and walk into the park, sit in the hollow of night's carcass. Others are here, lovers stranded by love, islands beneath the Syrian sky. They stare into the trees, not looking, not seeing, but holding the small part of themselves. They do not give in order to give, cupping it like tiny blue flames. And I'll read two more short poems um, and then pass to my friend, um, Doug. This one's called Charity. In the mouth of the church, two men, three women, picnic away from the rain. A man in rags beside them sleeping. Before they plate sandwiches, cornichons, fresh peppers, sorry, fresh pears, cold meats. A piece of bread is broken from the loaf, wine poured into a red plastic cup, placed by his body, care taken not to waken him. And this is, uh, this is called the folded wing. The lone duck in Medici fountain slips her beak beneath the wing and falls asleep, drifting like a hat tossed into a green pond. How good it feels to be one's own comfort, to discover all the warmth we need buried in our bodies. Yes, we bleed, we are broken, we get just one body. Yet there it lies most of the time, calling to us, saying, rest here, lie down on me. I am more than less than you, even in a world that treats us as two. Thanks. John, that was beautiful. Thank you, Doug. Love those poems. And I, I, I love the way that you um, remind us that we live in a world that can do a pretty decent job of caretaking small bits of land and property and still doesn't know how to caretake around other human beings. Um, and I feel like um, the, the beauty and empathy that you find in these poems is really just incredibly moving. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you said, um, I only have my own two eyes. And I feel like, you know, that's both like the, the limitation of the artist, but also the genius because um, we have to, develop that third eye, that imaginary eye, that gets us around the problem of our own subjectivity. Um, I'm starting tonight with a poem. Um, this uh, was written uh, a few years ago, but it seems even more pertinent today. Uh, it's entitled Long Night, Full Moon. You only watch the news to find out where the fires are burning, which way the wind is blowing, and whether it will rain. Forecast ahead, but first. A mother's boy laid out in the street for hours. These facts don't wash away. Climbing inside the Statue of Liberty, climbing inside uh, the idea of what that represents, I think is a really interesting thing because 
uh, we live in a country that was founded on the principle of um, being willing to fight for individual liberty. And um, this weekend is Pride Weekend. Yay. Um, I've got a virtual thumb, but I'm just using my real one. Um, But, uh, you know, over the years, I've become so... um, so disenamored of Pride Weekend because it started out as really this sort of revolutionary thing, taking the streets and claiming a place for oneself as a queer person in San Francisco and in other cities around the world um, felt like an incredibly empowering act, which has gradually been overtaken by product placement. And, um, you know, it's been sort of diluted so that the really most um, radical representations of queerness and um, sexuality have sort of been swept to the edges. We don't want any nudity. We want, you know, family friendly homos. Um, So uh, this poem, uh, John published in uh, his magazine, Freeman's Journal. It's called The End of the Pride Parade. Um, I wrote this when there was a pride parade. This year there isn't. So I guess I got my wish. It's it's not going to be, you know, this garrulously long um, parade of of, um, tchotchkes. I went to the parade and watched people wave at Wells Fargo. I watched them wave at Harvey Milk now more than 30 years dead, and lift up their phones. Look at me with a drag queen, they'll scream at their kids one day. Love has been sponsored into law, but a lot of you didn't vote for it. I did not come for the free t-shirt, I came for the free condoms that'll sit in my hope chest, like a bill that keeps getting tabled in Congress. Where is the fuck brigade? I went to the dick parade. It was the same as this, but I didn't get a lay from the US bank. There was no Chipotle float. Homo estas with a giant foil wrapped cylinder representing the burrito of equality. Folks are cheering in the streets for Walmart whose workers have shown up pushing unironic shopping carts. After them comes Dignity Health and Yahoo, Orlando Strong, then Macy's and the Berkeley Free Clinic. Someone ran off with our dildo and turned it into a marketing tool. Bring back the street hose, baby. Don't step in the vomit. Um, and this, uh, this poem I'm reading uh, because it's in a journal that... Uh, John and I are both in, uh, entitled Ulta. Um, uh, they uh, are a West Coast magazine, nice, big, beautiful, glossy publication, and, um, and they publish poetry, um, which is really cool. And um, I wrote this uh, while I was out of the country as the coronavirus anxiety was ramping up here. Um, 
not that I knew necessarily what was going on back home because, you know, part of the being on vacation is trying to shut out the news or not paying attention to the news. But um, the news was getting to me in other ways. This is called summons. Like, you know, a summons. A goodness that isn't in us until it's in us. Little cakes, jam filling, something to tide us over. Except it comes from inside and has no decoration. What if I reached down deep, he said, and there was nothing. That's when I got scared for all of us. What if, what if? Being the hour of disquiet. On the bridge, a woman heaped over with a cup extended beyond her as far as she could reach and still grasp its paper sides. What if every mother bore a cup and asked us to hold that cup while she went for milk? Did you step past already? You are not remarkable. You did the expected thing. You watched the gulls diving for bread upon the water down below. Are you saving for a house? And if you own it, will you own it as a sanctuary from the worst suffering? Will it keep you like a cookie until mealtime? Meal this should keep you. Tuppence. Goodness, are you there? You've got it in you. Goodness that only goodness knows. How do the sad go shopping? Sadly, some of this, some of that. Toothpaste, something in case, in case of company, in case of fire. I'm going to... Um, read a couple of poems from this chapbook. Uh, this just came out uh, on April 1st from a press called Rescue Press uh, in Iowa City. Atlas One. Atlas T. Atlas T. Atlas T. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, only a, a, an edition of 250. Um, all of the proceeds, every penny, including the labor cost and the mailing cost, all goes to Youth Speaks, which is a San Francisco organization that creates safe spaces for young people to uh, find their voices in poetry. Um, the poems are all six lines long. Um, each of them has a title. The titles are all stolen from um, the DVD version of a movie co-authored by Stephen Sondheim and uh, Anthony Perkins um, called The Last of Sheila. So I just took the chapter titles from the DVD because sometimes I don't want to bother coming up with titles and I just stuck the titles on the poems after they were written. Um, so it was kind of like a, you know, match game. A body discovered. 
until love seals me in a bag inside a heavy morgue drawer and tanks me. I am anyone's paramour. Butterfly among the marigolds. In the impossible summer city, I find your dumb boy bottom hanging out your dungarees, catching frisbee or something. It looks like you've got a little sun. I don't care how much you don't love me. I am thy inconstant sparrow. Until you hear the loose seed of milk vetch rattle in the pod, that's how blue the long sky. There is yet no hawk's eye waiting, but the great monster will come to take me someday. When it tears me, don't look. When it tears me with its hard hooks, don't look. Do not resuscitate. I know the fog lets loose in wisps. They are the shape of moss on live oak limbs. I'll tell you when to code. Um, the movie, The Last of Sheila, has six characters who are all implicated in some way in what starts out as a murder mystery parlor game and turns into a real murder mystery. Um, I feel like that's some sort of metaphor for the United States right now. We're all implicated in murders that we're not committing, but we are committing by virtue of what we're allowing to happen. This one's called Puzzle Pieces. They haven't invented a morning after pill that actually gets rid of the morning after. As long as we're talking about where I've been. Down to the easy stop market to grab some buds. That's when I ran into hot check Hannah who wrote, you guessed it, a hot check and got me some smokes. Somehow I still had five bucks when I got to the bar. I wish I'd had it when I left. I could have used five dollars. I'm not even going to tell you what it was like to fuck in Eddie's trailer. Or Eddie's friend's trailer. Different Eddie. Different trailer. God knows where he is now. Once we were close enough to give each other lice. The future is the present we leave for others. Besides the complications, there were bodies, the wonder of bodies, the misery of bodies. Oh, time, you done robbed me blind. Um, this one's called Unclean Exit. Um, thinking about, you know, urban planning and parks. Um, they told me I must learn to kill my darlings, so I started with you. Release the body in spring like it's on sale. I see you in all things, porn, poodles, porn poodles, they are a separate breed, and anything else that is urban. The cinched bark of a tree, the restrictions on zoning. Once they tighten the belt, they ain't gonna loosen unless the old red hot poker up the bum. I refer, of course, to Edward II, who should have dumped his darling Gaveston. 
planning. That's an urban thing. Dress in layers, peel throughout the day. Reflective panes so we can look past one another. In the midst of the city, we plant trees. They are chosen both to hide and to withstand men's urine. And of course, disease. And I'm going to end uh, with this poem. Uh, it's the uh, penultimate poem in the book, because, you know, I never want to give away the ending. Not that it's a novel and, you know, there's some sort of expected ending, but there are endings. Um, so this is called Agreed on the Basics. And uh, if you know the film, The Last of Sheila, this is right near where we figure out who the killer is. But this has nothing to do with the movie. You know, I'm just st stealing these titles. Agreed on the basics. Who wouldn't want to be lost in the clouds? They hide so much. They raise the eucalyptus hills, the radio tower. Even a lad in fluorescent green can go missing. Clouds rolled in upon his head. He wasn't dead but not alive. He went to limbo. As all good pagans did, the toe-head, dead, not dead. The news blew in and out all day, impossible to know which way to dress. Then there were so many other deaths we could, who could keep track? Well, there were gods in the clouds and they kept track. They watched out. He was snatched up by something beautiful and deadly, that one-eyed monster love who swallows every eve doth serve. And now there is the sun, the sweet sun we thought we'd lost. I was just hiding, he says. Oh, if he only says that. Thank you. Thank you for your... <laughs> for your silent hands. Um, John? Hey, that was lovely. Thank you. Um, what a great pleasure to get to read with you. Yeah, same here. I was, before um, our event started, we were talking about the last time we saw each other. And what was the bar called? Mr. Bing's. Mr. Bing's, yeah, we were just sitting there. And, and I remember the pleasure, you know, when you, used to actually go out and stand and lean on things yeah. and how you would arrange your body in places. And when as you were reading to touch the world, yes, when it was okay. But I, um, one thing I want to ask you about is, uh, you know, going back to the first poem that you read, you know, about how, you know, putting your bodies into the street, kind of take over a street and make a statement and kind of re reframe the frame, if you will. Uh, and I, I wonder if you've been out, been able to go out on any protests in the last couple of weeks or if you've had an experience of, you know, taking your own actual body out into the world yeah. in some well, way and, and if the world feels different. Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, right, when, uh, right when the pandemic closure started, I started getting all of these emails from people who were rushing to put together anthologies for, you know, like, responses to the to the 
um, pandemic. And um, I was thinking, which pandemic do they mean? I'm still living through the last one. Um, and so, you know, going out in the street and putting your body on the line has always been a revolutionary part of my existence. I have been to protests and I've been um, astounded at how beautiful people are with one another right now. I mean, you know, um, the news sells violence, they sell, um, you know, uh, images of um, strife and disagreement. But um, when you get out into the streets, you realize that most people in this country really do want change. Um, I wouldn't be out protesting a, a pandemic, but we have a deeper pandemic, which is not a virus that we can't see. It's a ideology we can't see, but we can see evidence of it. And um, I feel like it's really important to show up and be counted. Uh, what about yourself? Have you had some protest? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the very first one came down my block. Um, so that I just sort of simply left my house. And uh, it, if New York can be a bit of a drag, you know, in the same way that some of the things you were describing about um, the Pride Parade have obviously happened here too, and they've happened on, on, on other realms within New York. And so you're constantly sort of within a, a shopping mall of sorts. And, you know, it, when, when everything is about purchasing, it takes a lot of things away. And, and once the streets were taken over by people, they started to be redefined and what they meant. And you're right, the many, many tiny acts of kindness within that crowd um, when you're in a protest. And I went to about 12 or 13 in a row and uh, it was impossible to, to come away without feeling like something massive was happening. And it does, to me, reaffer, re re reify a kind of belief in the holiness of the bottle and its power and what, what is there. And, one of the things I really love about useless landscape is that, you know, I grew up in this Sacramento in the San Joaquin Valley. You described, there's a poem in there about the Sunrise Mall. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's one in every, you know, kind of central California town. Central citrus Valley town. Yes, yeah. yeah, citrus heights. But, um, you know, and, and throughout the book, there are these spaces that are kind of mundane shopping malls, but they're, charged and changed by erotics um, in, in many cases. And um, they've, it, it completely alters the, uh, the, the power of some of those places to create uh, diminishing frames by um, bearing down on the, on the beauty and experience of, of, of sex uh, or a, a charge between two people. And I feel like a protest is like a macrocosm of something like that. It's, it's not an erotic event, but it does have some erotics to it because of so many bodies together. Yeah. And, and, and it was so, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that it was very um, uh, moving 
on a cellular level to be amongst that many people in the middle of a pandemic that set us apart because it, it made it feel like you could, um, you know, transmit um, a desire through change through almost non, non-linguistic levels because clearly <laughs> those have been failing us. Um, Len Hagenian said something to me years ago at a party and I think about it every day. Um, how else do we know the world except through our bodies? And I think that, you know, um, when we're faced with a, an ideological um, construct, which is threatening to crush us and threatening to diminish our lives or to destroy them, um, the only way to combat that is to show up and be present in your body. Um, I love the, the metaphor of um, the Statue of Liberty and going inside of it. And I also kind of chuckled when you were reading because when I read your, your book, um, I didn't get this at all, but um, suddenly it flashed in my head that image of the Statue of Liberty buried up to its chest in sand from the end of um, the greatest movie it made in 1968, which was um, Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah. Were you thinking about that at all? It was, actually. I was thinking constantly about um, uh, about the way we, the way we signpost history and the way that our culture is constantly making fun of that that sense of um, eternity. I mean, there are a lot of monuments in in the in the park, the literal park that I'm in. But everywhere we go, we're surrounded by monuments, and I was thinking about them a lot. And 2016, because it was like watching someone, you know, at least in this country, try to turn himself into a living monument. And it was just absolutely fraudulent. And then I, I, so I spent a lot more time looking at monuments everywhere I went. And I have been for a while. And I thought, we've made monuments of truly terrible things. But I, I, one one thing that I wanted to talk to you about with regard to sort of just landscapes and citizenship and living in sort of end end times that um, also came out of... um, your work is, I don't know about you, but music means a lot more to me now than ever, you know? Um, and I, I, I sometimes turn it on and, it, and it's overwhelming. And I think this is one of the reasons why poetry lately has been so powerful when it's really good, is that it, it's, it reminds you of the connection to music. And you have a lot of uh, sort of um, rhyming couplets and things in your poems. And, I, you know, I wonder if you can, on a, just a structural level or just a poet level, talk to me about that. Because uh, you, all of your forms are very different. And within your poems, you, you sometimes get to these places where you are almost silly. And then suddenly, two or three lines later, it's, the poem is terrifying or it's incredibly moving. And... You know, I, one of the things I love about pop culture is it can take something that's moving like a Statue of Liberty that's given to a country and gratitude and sort of 
this are also mutual ideas of liberty. And then, you know, a film published in the height of the Vietnam War during the Nixon years can bury that in sand and, and throw apes around it and, and make a very powerful political statement. And I, I, I wonder if you can talk about rhymes as a, as a way to tilt a poem or, or, or add humor to it. Well, I think that there are all sorts of ways of rhyming, uh, sonically, but also imagistically. Um, we can circle back to ideas the way you did, just did with the Statue of Liberty. And I am thinking, yes, the thing is, you know, you reintroduce an idea, but you twist it a little bit more. Now we're at the point where, you know, liberty is buried about up to here. Um, this is the world we're living in now. And the sand <laughs> is going to be shutting off our entire apparatus soon. Um, I think that rhyme is a way to sort of, um, you know, um, create delight. Um, but I also go back to, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a playwright before I ever wanted to be a poet. And I loved the way Shakespeare would give us a rhymed couplet to close a scene, to let us know people are about to go off stage. And so sometimes I do that deliberately, de de deliberately? Um, <laughs> deliberately, um, at a po point where you're not gonna go off stage. So it's a little bit like when the music rises on the TV show and you're like, oh, they're cutting to a commercial, but there's no commercial, we're still in it. We're still trapped inside the reality of the poem. Yeah. I, 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 oh, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you a question. Um, you said in um, your dictionary of the undoing, being a global citizen today means doing one's research about the things that touch us. Can you say a little bit more about you know, what it means to do research as a writer, as a, as a person living through words in, in today's climate? Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of overwhelming totality when you think about it. Um, it, it for me, it, it, it covers everything from the clothes you wear to the food you eat to the people that you work with, um, the people, and I'm an editor, so it's, it's the people I publish, which is not to say that I have a, um, a kind of um, height-based morality test, the way like when you were a kid, you couldn't get on certain amusement park rides until you were 50 inches tall. Um, but I, I do, we, you know, we're trying, I think, in literature to create um, uh, alternative spaces you know, for the mind and for the body to enter in a strange spell-like, um, you know, trance, if you will. You know, words on a page, when we were at that bar, Oscar Villalone was saying, words on a page that you read that produces a, a sensation and a vision of something that's not there, that's, that's the definition of a spell. So um, as, a, as a writer, I think you have to have a lot of freedom in order to produce those things, but as a as a kind of literary citizen, you go back and forth between the spell and and the materials of the spell, which is often 
things based in the real world. And so I, um, I've never been a, a real firm believer in art for art's sake, if that makes any sense. And I, I, it was, it always seemed strange to me that that was an actual, um, thing that you had to defend that somehow you couldn't be both that you couldn't be beautiful and engaged at the same time. And I know sometimes you know, for me, just making art is a way of keeping myself from going nuts. Yeah. From, from not going insane. And I, you know, I love in, in your books, how you, you veer between things, you know, that, that, that are in some ways in the news. Um, and then sometimes it's, it's something that's very, very private. And it, it con constantly tilts what, the, what your definition of the news is. So for me, um, I think I get, I, as a writer I, and an editor, I, I get obsessed with things to try to understand them. Um, and that keeps um, introducing me to other writers, actually. Uh, and that those writers create um, expanded versions of, of reality. And so one of my frustrations of living in the world as a citizen of the news or consumer of news and as a person tied to political spheres is I feel like um, I, I, I wish we could have much better talking heads. <laughs> you know, what if Robbie Alamadine could go on to um, Lawrence O'Donnell, you know, instead of Lawrence Tribe for the 18th million time. And, you know, Professor Tribe is an expert in constitutional law and is great. We need him. But I, I just feel like we've tried political experts for a long time. Why don't we try poets or novelists or comedians? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would, I would uh, subscribe to a channel of just Robbie sitting around and talking about life and the world. He's so funny. So, I think he's probably broadcasting that channel right now to himself. <laughs> this is one of the most uh, intelligent and amusing people probably on the face of the world. Um, and he put his <laughs> name into the chat function. Let's see. He, maybe he's come in under his cat's name. Uh, but he's also just a beautiful novelist and he he comes up with ideas the way that, uh, that I think are desperately needed in political discourse. Um, so one of the things he's deeply against is preconceived emotions in literature. I'm sure he, he's, he's talked to you about this, but you know, um, Kool-Aid's or the art of war, his 1996 novel about the civil war in Lebanon and, and um, the, the AIDS crisis is, it, it, it does some of the things we were talking about with rhymes and upsetting expectations in that here's a poem about two terrible things and yet it, it is a, a novel about two terrible things and it's making you laugh. And it refuses to kind of go towards plangency when you are expected to get that thing. And I think that that is the sort of, to me, the direction of thought, you know, when you, you kind of upend expected situations john we're getting some questions in the chat function here there's one for you from neil hammonds so john i was going to ask you just with your both with your poetry collection and with with freeman's with the journal if you started with you started with a theme and then looked for the work or if you kind of started with the work and waited for the theme to emerge 
Um, so that was the first question I was going to ask you, and then just how you selected your the stuff that was in in your Freeman's anthologies. That's um, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, I think with the last issue of Freeman's, which is themed to California, I had to choose the theme in advance because um, otherwise I would have had non-Californians floating around. Um, and I did that because I felt like there's a lot of um, amazing writing coming out of California and that's happening right now that isn't leaving California or there, there was a moment to be celebrated necessarily. Um, and, you know, some people uh, are well known and some are, are not. And I felt like this would be a great chance to see what happened if I put the, the best I could get together um, in one book. And so that's how I was lucky enough to get one of Doug's poems. Um, um, and there's poems by lots of other wonderful writers in there, Mater Vang, uh, Frank Bedart. Um, Natalie Diaz is a poet from Needles, but um, she has an essay. And, but normally with the anthologies like that, I, I, um, I sort of start buying pieces that I fall in love with and then a theme emerges. And with my poems, um, I was really just searching for a kind of um, purchase on the world in a way. Like uh, I was trying to figure out what the world was telling me um, by looking at it and by trying to imagine my way into it and look at myself in that situation. And that ended up becoming the book, um, sort of trying to break down sensory boundaries and thinking of an ecosystem that wasn't entirely human centric, um, which a park is, you know, it, it's made by humans, but the animals don't know that. Um, the animals have been there or have been there for a while. What about you, Doug? Do you, um, when you start to put together a collection, are you, do you, do you have an idea of where you're going or do, do sometimes the um, shape of it emerge as a surprise? Yeah, um, I try to live my life not knowing where I'm going. I feel like, generally speaking, it's a better way to experience the world because then your expectations are not, you know, um, in any way disappointed. Um, and I feel that way in particular with poetry. It's like poetry seems to me to be one of the last things that you can do with absolutely no materials, um, nothing about the poem has to have been touched by a machine in any way. You can just, you know, I mean, you can just experience a poem in your mind, in your body, in your voice, um, in your hands. And I love the freedom of poetry. So I think this kind of ties into the next question, which is from Christina Coppa. So I'm gonna let her ask that question and then we can both talk a little bit about it. So my question was about craft. When crafting a poem, what do you usually look for? What are you trying to convey at least most of the time? Not every poem is the same, but what is the message that most of the time you find yourself wanting to give to the reader? Crafting. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think um, when I'm writing a poem, first of all, it starts with 
a little idea, a seed, some words that get stuck in my brain. And it's a little bit like um, what happens to an oyster when a little bit of sand gets inside it and it starts to create all these layers of nacreous uh, solution to kind of smooth over that piece of sand to wrap its oyster mind around it. And so for me, craft is something that sort of grows from a center outward. Um, what about you, John? That is such a great description. Makes me also miss oysters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very similar. I, you know, for example, the last poem I read, uh, the, the, um, uh, about the lone duck in the Medici fountain, I actually was having a, a ruinous day and I was in a horrible mood and I was walking around like all angry and I saw this duck sort of floating in circles with its beak, you know, tucked under its, under its wing. And I thought, why am I, why am I, you know, using my body to make myself angrier or hold myself, hold my anger? Why don't I just, you know, sit down and chill out a little bit. And I, I, so I thought, what if that was the beginning of a poem, where would it go? And I had a notebook with me. So I just sat down and I thought, okay, the first thing I have to do is describe that, that image, you know, the lone duck in the Medici fountain slips her beak beneath her wing and falls asleep. Um, drifting like a hat in a green pond. Um, and, th and then the, th that creates a kind of mood and atmosphere. Um, how do I, as Doug, Doug was talking about with his, um, with rhyme and other elements of, of poetry, like how do, you, how do you turn the idea? How do you turn the idea of comfort? Um, and what is the idea that's there? And so I, I, each kind of line raises the stakes and the possibilities of the next line or two. Um, and that's sort of my, the way my brain works when I'm writing poems. And I don't know about you, Doug, but once I get into that mode, it, I, you know, everything I see ends up, you know, the back of um, cereal boxes, you know, little scraps of paper, it, it all becomes um, kind of food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... I, I, I feel that way too, like anything can find its way in. The, the poem becomes this creature that needs to feed off of language. And what language does it feed off of? Whatever you're love, surrounded by. I love your mixture in your poems. You know, there's a, there's a very, um, a frankly really dirty poem in, in, in Useless Landscape called Chicken. Um, that goes back and forth between high Anglo-Saxon language and, um, and sort of, you know, a, a, a more Californian language. And it's, it's so incredibly mesmerizing. Um, uh, I, that it, it, it made, it makes me wonder what uh, books you have open, you know, cause it, it does feel like um, the, the, Romantic poetry and um, Shakespeare feel very close to your sonic sound. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I was reading when I wrote Chicken, but I feel like maybe the guiding spirit of that poem was probably Jean Genet, because mm -hmm. I was playing with like some slang that is used in prisons and jails. Um, this ties in with the next question, which is from, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Jimena Blanca. Hi, um, you did say it correctly. I was wondering, because this is my first pandemic, has your relationship to your body and to the bodies around you, whether they be flesh or made of a different material, changed during the pandemics you've lived through? And has it ever gone back to feeling somewhat resembling normal? I don't know what normal is. And I don't know if I've ever known. Um, I feel like life is an obstacle course all the time. Um, it might not feel that way for everyone, but it always feels that way for me. So, um, changes. Well, I feel like right now I am so responding to this feeling of isolation and being closed in. Um, I'm used to, you know, I'm an outdoor cat and suddenly I'm, I'm shut up indoors. And so I find I've been watching a lot of Esther Williams and Carmen Miranda movies because they're saturated with color and sound and music. And um, so I feel like I'm sort of starved for stimulation right now. Um, and I think that's finding its way into the poetry writing as well. What about you, John? I think the biggest um, experience I've had, you know, bodily since the pandemic, since having COVID and getting better, um, what was going to protests, you know, um, and, and, you know, there were different types of um, moods within the protests. Like there was a couple silent ones that was on that, that were really powerful that just simply allowed the, the proximity of bodies moving and standing in space to, to, to express something. Um, but it's, it still doesn't get over the fact that, you know, I, I haven't, you know, I've, I've, I've hugged but one person in four months. Um, yeah. Maybe, two, you know, and that's, that is, uh, that, that uh, I can't even begin to describe what that's doing to me. Um, I know it's doing something. Um, uh, and, you know, part of my reaction to it is to go outside and try to be outside and, even, I don't know if you felt this way or anyone else listening felt this way, but after I was, I was sick for about three weeks and was indoors and then I was better and I went outside and, I, and the, the air, when it wasn't wind, felt, I could feel it on my eyeballs. <laughs> and I thought, is, is, am I just suddenly sensitized now to what it feels like to be outdoors? And I don't know. I, 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 I kind of agree with Doug in that I, I sort of tip forward into every day 
in a state of um, hopefulness, but chaos, um, sometimes both. Uh, and I think to me, that's the only way to function. But uh, I don't know what it's gonna do to us to be physically apart from each other for this long. You know, cause I, you, the first thing that happens if you're born is you're hugged to a body. You know, that's a natural instinct. And for that to be out of a body and you still want to, you still want to touch it. Yeah. And, and I, I actually, you know, Doug, I've seen you a few times in various locations and I think we've hugged a few times. I can remember what it feels like to hug you. Um, but I have to mentally do that now, you know, in, in the same way that it's a sense that's browned out that, you know, you have to kind of reactivate, but it's, it's not the, an obvious thing, you know? Um, and that's, it's really a drag. You know, I think we, 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 we communicate that way and we share information that way. Um, and, you know, lately I think the only response, and I'll be like every other person under the quarantine and the aftermath is I've ended up cooking a lot because it's a way to touch someone without touching them. Yeah, and also it, it feeds that need that the body has. Like, we have an appetite for each other, and now we have to supplant that appetite with just an appetite for food. I think we're all getting a little bit rounder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which will be good if, if, you know, if we end up in real starvation uh, mode. But... Um, yeah, there's something about missing that. And that's why I think it's so wonderful um, to have an event like this because um, not only are we able to have our virtual visit to City Lights, a physical place that we love and have physical memories of, but we're also able through the uh, miracle of electronic surveillance equipment to, um, <laughs> to be visited by people from all across the, the globe and the world. Um, so, you know, uh, there is something good happening, which is that people are finding ways to, to touch each other in ways that maybe replace some of that physicality. I do find these um, strangely intimate, you know, I think because you can see into everyone's homes and your face is as big as the screen. And I spend most of my day at this object, my computer looking at it. And now suddenly there's all these people in it. Um, you know, some people I know, some people I don't know, Sarah Cruz, Robert, you know, and there are names across the top and it's actually, it is a different kind of together, um, you know, so thank you City Lights for, for making this possible. Um, the, we, the, la the last question is from Stacy Lewis and I think it's really perfect. Um, <laughs> wanna ask Stacy? Oh. <laughs> Just my son is behind me watching YouTube, imagine. Okay, I'll read, well, I'll read what I wrote. Okay. John, <laughs> the clock behind you, it stopped at 820. 
I just realized it hasn't moved during this entire event. Is that symbolic of something or do you need a battery? Um, yeah, the short answer is battery, but um, yeah, there's symbols everywhere and that is definitely one of them. But, uh, I, I am in the this, this, this strange flat circle of time and have been for a while. Um, you know, I think we all, yeah, Doug's right. We could all use a new battery. <laughs> one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me when I lived with them um, is uh, secretly wind the clock in my bathroom before we went to bed. Um, she would sneak in there and do that. And it was like this tiny thing that became so regular for a while, I didn't notice it. And I realized, wait a second, I've never wound that clock. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, um, some, some clocks wind down and others, others keep going. Anyway, I, um, I should let everyone get on with their evening. It's, uh, it's, it's 10, a little after 10 here in New York and it's probably dinner time in California. And it's 8.20 somewhere. It's 8.20 and yeah, mountain time or whatever. Um, hey, thank you and, both. Uh, this, this was really, really quite fantastic. And, and the thing that I'm gonna miss the most really is like the going out for drinks part, which- Let's do it. Know. So a rain check to you both for that drink. Uh, and thank you all for, for coming. Um, since you're poetry lovers, I, I will point out that City Lights actually has a couple of books that are forthcoming. Uh, one, uh, Uchi Naduka, and then the other one from Sophia Dahlin. They're both gonna be in the Spotlight series. And then also there's a, a book by Jean Dive about uh, Paul Salon. So uh, those are coming out in the fall. Keep an eye out. You can check out our website. Also, uh, a bunch of events coming up. We've got Ben Ehrenreich coming up in July. We've got John Nichols and Robert Shear talking about the state of the disunion. Uh, there's a Philip Whalen tribute sponsored by Wave Books. So just pop onto our website, check it out. Uh, thank you all for being here. And um, thank you all for being here. Peter, thanks for hosting this. Uh, it's almost as good as getting to see you in, in the flesh. Um, I love that you've got the virtual background of the bookstore. The so poetry it's room. <laughs> <laughs> love and you all. Love you too. And that's also important to say to everyone, I love you because when will you get another chance? And we need more yeah. now more than ever. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.